Today, together, you and I are going to learn the rest of the story. I'm Robert Smith, and that was the late, great Paul Harvey you heard at the top of the show. And that can only mean one thing. Today, we bring you the rest of the story. It's our second annual follow-up show where we look at all of the stories that we've done in 2012, and we figure out what we got right, what we got wrong, and we tally up the number of votes for a fake presidential candidate. Today's show will be co-hosted by the members of the Planet Money team, but we want to start with an update on our shell companies. This year, we at Planet Money wanted to figure out this whole maybe shady, maybe not world of offshore companies, and what better way to do that than to just start one or two of them. And it was pretty easy. There's a company in Belize that will create a corporation for you, give you all the proper documents. Our corporation is called Unbelizable. And amazingly enough, this company will also, for a fee, provide a fake director and a fake shareholder of the corporation, so we can keep our names secret. Our director was Desiree. She sits at a desk somewhere in Belize and puts her name on shell companies for a living, I guess. Umberto, also in Belize, was our designated shareholder. Hannah Jaffe-Walt and David Kestenbaum really wanted to meet these people, our employees, and Desiree and Umberto declined. So we went to a lawyer and we asked, can we make them talk to us? So as reporters, you know, that leaves us kind of stuck. But as owners of Unbelizable, we had more options. Our tax lawyers told us, you want to meet these guys? Write yourselves into the annual meeting. So we have here the company may hold once every calendar year an annual meeting. You can amend this to say the company shall have if you want. In, in Belize at her house maybe or something. Right, right. Absolutely. Would you guys help us write that? Absolutely. <laughs> do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. David tears out a piece of paper from his legal pad. He hands it to you, Hannah, and gives you a pen. And then Daniel just starts... Dictating, like off the top of his head. Yeah. So, okay, so you could write um, resolution of the members of Unbelievable Inc. Okay. Okay. And it's kind of a, amazing to watch him. He, he kind of leans back in his chair, looking up at the ceiling. He goes on for several whole paragraphs just off the top of his head. Pursuant to Article 16, we hereby resolve as follows. And this, this is, this is, the, you know, this is the, the guts here. The company shall hold. Instead of May. Instead of May. Uh, its annual meeting in Belize. In Belize. And then I think the crucial part is that you should say, you know, Anne, Hannah, and David shall attend. Oh, this is a run on sentence. That's Am okay. I still going? That's okay. okay. <laughs> and from. And there you have it. And then you would send that. Um, Excellent. There, there it is. And now it's the law. You have to go. Joining us are the masterminds behind our shell companies. We have Hannah Jaffe Walt and David Kestenbaum. So, you sent this letter that you got drafted by the lawyer. What happened? Can I say a word about the letter first? Yeah. Hannah just wrote it on like a legal pad, you know, in really sloppy handwriting. It's the first time I've ever written anything legal on a legal pad. And I was like, you can't send it. You got to like type it up and send it to them. No. <laughs> we just scanned it and attached it to an email and sent it to Richard, the guy in Belize who sold us this company package that came along with the fake shareholders with Desiree. And... He wrote me back to my email and said, in light of the unorthodox amendment, our manager is dealing with this matter, and we will revert to your query as soon as he returns from being out of the country. 
But I have to say, when we got this, I still thought that it was going to happen because the lawyers seemed really certain, like, these people's one job is to do what you tell them to do. And so just tell them to meet with you and they will meet with you. I still thought that it was going to happen. I thought it was definitely going to work. You thought it was checkmate. It was legal checkmate because this <laughs> yeah. is it, it is your company, right? Yeah, and they actually were already having meetings. Like the paperwork that we got, Desiree and Umberto had had a meeting to make themselves the nominees of our company. And so? So then after a bunch of back and forth with Richard where he was trying to clarify what exactly we were asking for and he kind of thought we wanted to come to Belize to be able to write it off as a corporate expense for a while. <laughs> Which is a great idea. Right. <laughs> um we said really clearly, no, we just we want to meet with them and we want the two of them to be in the room. And then Richard heard the podcast and he basically wrote us and said, you totally mischaracterized what nominees do. These are nominees. There's nothing fake about them. They are very real. You opted for this service and we charged you for it. And this is what they're meant to do. And there's nothing shady about it. And because you mischaracterized it and because you named Desiree and Umberto, you actually said their names on the air. And now that's out there in public, they're going to resign. And we need to give them new names for new director and shareholders. Wait, you have to come up with the names? I yeah. thought that was part of the package. Exactly. Yeah, we, just, we just sort of were like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? We didn't do anything. And so then they made Hana the director. <laughs> Which defeats the whole purpose of a shell company, right? It, exactly. It defeats the purpose of having the secret fake shareholders that are not actually you. They sent us an official new... Uh, Certificate of Incorporation, it says, this is to certify that Hannah Jaffe Walt, holder of passport number, blah, 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 is the registered proprietor of all common shares. <laughs> Signed, Desiree Singh, director, not fake director. It's so sad. I mean, all you want to do is just like ask questions. What's it like to be on the board of, what, 100 companies, 200 companies? We don't know. Yeah, and I just wanted to see what a meeting was like. Like, do they actually sit in a room and talk about unbelievable business? Yeah, they're not getting paid that much. Does it? Is it 30 seconds for a corporate meeting and then done, stamp? I mean, Desiree is director of Lord knows how many companies. <laughs> well, there's one she's not director of anymore. <laughs> David Hanna, thanks for the update. Sure. Sure. Earlier this year, we met uh, a very, very interesting person, Justina Clayton. Jacob Goldstein joins us. Tell us about Justina. So Justina, Robert, she grew up in Sierra Leone. She lives in Utah now, and she's apparently really good at braiding hair. And so she had this business in her home, braiding people's hair, kind of a low-key thing. She stayed home, you know, watched her kids, and basically made a little money on the side. And then one day, she gets this email from a stranger who had seen some little ad she ran about her business said it's illegal in the state of Utah to do any kind of extensions without a cosmetology license. And I thought, no way. I responded. I said, go ahead and report me. And in fact, the lady did report her. And it turns out it was illegal in Utah to braid hair without a license. And you had to go to cosmetology school, which took thousands of hours and was really not about braiding hair, was about washing and dyeing and cutting and all these other things that Justina didn't need to know about. And it turns out this is a really big deal in the economy, this whole licensing thing. And it amazed me when you did this show how many different professions and licenses there are. I don't think we always talk about doctors and lawyers, but there's so many more. Yeah, there's been this huge licensing creep sort of throughout the economy. And cosmetology is sort of one of the classics. But it has become this interesting issue. And there's this really interesting, important idea that comes out of this whole licensing thing, which is this. 
we usually think of business as being opposed to regulation. But one of the things you see when you look at licensing is existing businesses can really benefit from government regulation. So you have people who are already cosmetologists, people who run beauty schools. They want everybody to have to go to cosmetology school. So they go to state legislatures and they say, pass this law so that everybody has to do a ton of training, has to go to my school so that people can't come compete with me. And they they benefit from this regulation. So when we last left this story of regulation, Justina had challenged this in court. In fact, she became a little bit of a, a national cause celeb for, for the, this problems with regulation. So what's happened since? I actually called Justina this week. Here's what she told me. Well, uh, we finally made it to court, and Judge Sam, he's a really cool judge. Anyway, he <laughs> ruled in my favor. So you won your case? Yes, I did. It was great. Well, she won? Yeah, she won. So what does, that, what does that mean in, in terms of hair braiding in Utah? And it means she's elsewhere? now braiding hair again. I mean, it means, you know, now she has this little business. In fact, she just moved. I talked to her. She just moved. And she said in her basement, there's this nice little area where she's hoping to get, you know, somebody to come in and put some drywall and she's going to put a chair. But there is one sort of important asterisk here in this story before we get to the end of it. And that is there is this new bill that has been introduced in the legislature in Utah that says, okay, to braid hair, you do not have to go to thousands of hours of cosmetology school, but you have to do a few hundred hours of training to braid hair. And Justina, she and her lawyers think, really, you shouldn't even have to do that. So they're planning to fight it. And this is going to be debated, apparently, in the Utah legislature in 2013. Do we know nationwide, is there a trend toward more licensing regulations? Are there more businesses wanting to protect themselves or people finally just saying, like, enough is enough? Certainly the long-term trend has been toward more and more licensing. I mean, there are some people now who are fighting it, but, you know, my sense is the long-term picture is more licensing, not less. There you go. Still unlicensed to do what he does, Jacob Goldstein. Thanks, Robert. Today we have a sad update to report. Hannah Jaffe Walt joins me now. We did a whole story on the organ allocation system, the way in which when you're waiting for a transplant, doctors decide who gets which organ. Yeah, so there's a long waiting list, you know, for pretty much every organ available. And we're interested in a sort of an economic question, like this is a scarce resource. How do you decide who gets it and who doesn't? And as I was reporting this story in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic, I met Ashley Diaz, who was a 15-year-old with cystic fibrosis who was waiting for lungs. Let's hear a little bit from the original show. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm fine. Are you Ashley's mom? I am. The only time I see Ashley make a real effort, an enormous effort, actually, a communication, is when the doctor comes in. Have a quiet night. Got some sleep. Anything else? Because otherwise it's status quo. We're waiting. At this point, Ashley pulls out a marker from somewhere and writes in enormous big caps as if it is the only thing she has ever wanted a voice to say. She writes, any news on lungs? No. You will be the first person to know. Okay? Okay. It'll happen. 
it'll happen. It, it's a long wait, and I know it's frustrating. Everyone always feels this way when they're waiting for long, but it, it, it'll happen. All right? Have a great day. Take it. Nice meeting you. You too. But he, he wouldn't say it's going to happen. So you have to, you can't be discouraged. They all feel as confident as they can. So you do too. You have to. Okay? It's going to happen. At this point, Ashley doesn't text or mouth anything back to her mom. She doesn't even look at her. She just settles back into waiting. Waiting for a peculiar bureaucratic system to give her life. So Robert, Ashley waited for another month and she died waiting. She died in June this year. Do we know why? Well, she was really close to the top of the list. The list changes every day, you know, depending on who's waiting, but she was really close to the top of the list. Her problem was that she's really small, as a lot of people with cystic fibrosis are, so she basically needed a child's lungs, and those are harder to come by. So there is this question in the whole allocation system now of if, you know, doctors want to tweak it a little bit to maybe give somebody like Ashley more points so that she would be at the very, very top of the list if any lungs that would fit her body came available. Now, are they changing this all the time? I mean, does one sad story after another come and then everyone sits around and goes, we have to, we have to do something about this? No, I mean, that must be incredibly difficult. And yeah. doctors are pretty self-aware that they're very biased towards their patients. And you see, you meet somebody like Ashley and you totally want the system to prioritize this particular disadvantage, but there's a ton of disadvantages. You know, people have don't match organs for all sorts of reasons. They have a weird blood type or they, you know, whatever. There's a million reasons why it would be hard for you to match with an organ. So it's like something that they're discussing all the time. I heard from her doctor recently that this was something that she brought up at conferences that she went to basically over the last couple months. But she brought up Ashley? She brought up the size issue, which I think she has seen with multiple cystic fibrosis patients. But she said, you know, there's no particular policy on the table right now to change it. You know, I remember part of the show was, was it mathematicians at MIT Mm -hmm. who had thought really about sort of more scientific and rational ways to allocate organs. But you're telling me here that, that they sort of lurch back and forth with these sad stories and someone discovers a problem and then they try and fix it and then there's a different problem. Is there... Is there always going to be a balance between those two things? Yeah. I mean, the thing that was really striking to me about the story was that the doctors were very self-aware that they were like the worst people to be making the decisions of how exactly organs are distributed because they have these very human emotional experiences that make them incredibly biased. And the doctors had sort of handed over this process to not exactly those MIT guys, but people like them to come up with models that, that were based on very objective metrics or as objective as you can get. Yeah. I mean, it must be hard because I... After hearing the story of Ashley, like you're just pulling for totally her. Totally want her to get lungs. I want her. To, I want her to get the lungs, and yet the doctors see those stories again and again. Yep. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. Earlier this year, we did a series of stories and shows on Facebook. And and our real question about Facebook was, 
can they really change the world of online advertising? You know, they promised they were going to make a ton of money by changing the way in which we sell things to each other, by basically being able to sell to your friends. Zoe Chase was one of the hosts of that show, and she joins me now. Now, you did an interesting experiment back in the day, back before the Facebook IPO, to figure out how advertising would work on Facebook. Yeah, we basically found some people that were thinking about advertising on Facebook for the first time and kind of followed them through it. There were these kids in New Orleans that had just opened up a pizza takeout window. Can you make good New York pizza outside of New York? And the dough is like the most important thing. Basically, we followed them through this process. So they sit down with this Facebook ad guru and come up with this little advertising campaign for their pizza place. And they ran a couple Facebook ads and all of them bombed except for this one that targeted people that live in New Orleans that like Italian food. And basically all they got out of the Facebook ad campaign was that they got a ton of new Facebook fans. That is what they got. They never necessarily got any more customers out of it. And so the story that we did, the way the way the story ended was was kind of, we'll see, but the implication was it's going to be kind of hard for Facebook to make good on its promise that its special, special data, that it knows what you like, that it knows who your friends are, is going to explode the world of internet advertising. Now, this was all before the Facebook IPO when the assumption pretty much everywhere, was that Facebook was going to be the most amazing IPO ever. I think we all know what happened, but what what did the Pizza Delicious guys think of what happened? I called them up to check on them, and they remember the day that Facebook IPO'd really well. It was actually a really awkward day for them. The day that the stock is hitting the market, and it's just tanking, and this is like this news story that, I I mean, we didn't hear much about the Facebook ads themselves, but we, (laughs) people were like, we heard you on NPR, like, sounds like Facebook ads suck, and (laughs) I just, like, hear all this, like, spinning around in my head, and then I'm, like, checking the stock price, and I'm like, are, are we responsible for, (laughs) for this country's economy? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure the Pizza Delicious guys are going to get sued along with Morgan Stanley. It was really their fault. Yeah, I told them not to feel too bad about it. I don't feel bad about it personally. The thing about about Facebook's promise is that they haven't quite delivered on it. You know, it, it's just that they have all these users and they know all this stuff. So their their stock price now, it's still less than what they promised it was going to be for the IPO and whatever stock price. But they have launched this new thing with their advertising and this new thing... I've been reading a bunch about it, and it might actually be the thing that the investors were waiting for, the big promise that Facebook made that what it has is the most special thing, which is basically like, you know, advertisers pay Google to kind of stalk you on the Internet and like serve ads to you. And Google owns that marketplace. Facebook is launching this competitor to that. People say it's doing better than Google. It might be the game changer. Facebook has promised a lot of game changers like we will see. No, just what I needed. Someone else dogging me on the internet. Uh, but what about the Pizza Delicious guys? Are they okay? The pizza guys are great. They never needed Facebook. They just opened their restaurant and they have all of these customers. Like they have more customers than they could ever want. They have too many customers. And I asked them, like, what's the latest pizza that you guys have made? And it's this braised Brussels sprout pizza with speck, which is like kind of a little bitty prosciutto guy. And I've heard it's really awesome. All right, New Yorkers. Doing good. That's what I like to hear. Exactly. Thank you, Zoe. Bye. 
And now an update on the results of the presidential elections. How exactly did Planet Money's fake presidential candidate do? Oh, what? What? You don't remember our fake presidential candidate? Let's check back in. Previously on Planet Money. Six economists from across the political spectrum. Dean Baker, co-director. Trust Roberts. Uh, I'm Luigi Zingales. He's left of center. Hardcore free market. Pro-market, but not necessarily pro-business. Thrown together with one impossible mission. To come up with an economic plan to rescue the economy. One catch, in order to save the country, they're going to have to work together. To restructure the tax code. The, the corporate income tax makes no sense whatsoever. Eliminate cherished deductions. The mortgage interest deduction. To preserve the environment. Tax, energy use, or carbon emissions. And finally, deal once and for all with the scourge of illegal drugs. Make them legal. Climbing up on South Hill. And maybe, just maybe, this ragtag team can come up with a platform that every economist would love and every presidential candidate would hate except for our fake one. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Grab the things I'm going to take you home. (laughs) We're so proud of that. That's Alex Bloomberg, my co-conspirator in running this fake presidential candidate. So, we had the election. We did not win. We'll make that very clear. But, you know, our political consultants said you would not get a single vote. They said no one will vote for this candidate. And yet? We did get one vote. I mean, one vote that we know of because the vote caster, Aaron V., a listener of ours, sent in a picture of his ballot where he had written in Planet Money's fake presidential candidate. Yeah, he wrote that whole thing. We should have given him a name. It would have (laughs) been easier. But the fascinating thing about this was part of our premise was that these were issues that nobody was talking about in presidential politics. And yet, after the election, something strange has happened. Yes. So a bunch of stuff that our political experts and consultants said would never, ever happen are now being discussed and on the table. So, for example, the first deduction that every single economist we talked to hated, they were saying this is a gigantic distorting problem in the middle of the U.S. tax code, the mortgage interest deduction for homeowners. And I'm holding right now a Reuters article from December of this year. The U.S. tax code has many politically sacrosanct tax breaks and few rank higher than the deduction for home mortgage interest. For decades, politicians feared even to speak its name, but that may be changing as Washington grapples with ways to reduce the budget deficit. Ooh, does it actually mention us in this article? Are we the reason? See, no. Right here, Planet Money? No, no it, 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 it does not. It doesn't mention us. You know, I, I won't take credit for it. But at the same time, I think we, we might have miscalculated something, which is we were sort of saying people don't talk about this during election campaigns. It's impossible during election campaigns with the premise that that's where change actually happens. But as we've seen with this whole fiscal cliff debate, like real change may happen after an election's been settled. It's too far from the next election and there's a deadline and people are desperate. Right. Like, it just needed the right circumstances to talk about things that are incredibly unpleasant to talk about. Yes, exactly. I haven't heard a lot of discussion about switching over from an income tax-based system to a consumption tax-based system. That doesn't seem to be part of the political debate right now. But one other 
sort of surprising, I would say, plank from our platform, the legalization of marijuana, that has become law in two states this election season. Colorado and Washington, yeah. Exactly. That's something that sort of, again, the experts were like, that's a tough sell to the electorate, but at least in those two states, it was widely supported. And the thing that I liked about that was it was no longer sort of a, a you know a, a personal freedom issue in those two states when they actually debated marijuana legalization. They debated the same way we did, which was this is something that is an opportunity uh, to tax and to regulate and to bring this out in the open, to take the money away from the illegal cartels and the drug dealers and move it into the hands of legitimate businesses in the states. I mean, that's they had an actual economic discussion over marijuana. Exactly. Again, oh, what the heck? Let's take credit for it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we are the champions. We win. Yes, our our candidate died, but our candidate's platform lives on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Sure. As always, we love to hear what you think of our shows, Planet Money, and all the stories we've done right and done wrong over the past year. Write us, planetmoney at npr.org. Or if you'd like to hear more about any of the stories that we followed up on today, they are all available for your listening pleasure on our blog, npr.org slash money. Have a very happy New Year's Eve and a very prosperous 2013. I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. All the hits, one song. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Thank you, Alex. Uh, <laughs> this is not a hard. This is not a hard cue for you. My pleasure. It was uh, great to be on your program. I was trying to figure out like what to say. So you're welcome. Yeah. Alex, listen, it's so good to have you back. Thank you. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Great to be here. <laughs> you, you I'm here all here. the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm this having a hard time. I'm like, I, like I'm like, I don't usually get thanked off in okay, the middle I'll just of do the thing. I won't even thank you then. I'll yeah. do this. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Bloomberg. Take care. What are you now, an anchor? Courage. (laughs) Stay classy. Stay classy, Internet. (laughs) Oh. (laughs)